What's going on, everyone? My name's Adam, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our vision here at Sanctus is to become a regional church of 10,000, meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Come on, let's get ready for what we're about to hear. Hey, Sanctus Church. Good morning. Welcome to the second week of Advent. I hope you are already sort of in the Christmas season, expectant, working the faith out. You ever said the phrase, I just can't wait anymore, or the waiting is killing me? I hear this all the time. Think about food. How many times have we sat in a restaurant, you've looked at your watch or your phone, you're like, this is taking so long, I'm so hungry, this waiting is killing me, or the phrase we always use, I'm starving, which I would say the vast majority of us, majority of us have never starved, or ever tried downloading something and it's taking so long and you're just like, oh my goodness, this is so slow. Why is the download so slow? Why can't I have my app right now? Why can't I watch my Netflix show right now? Why is this taking, the waiting is killing me. Or, hey, listen, it's Christmas season and of course we in this moment in history rely on this thing called Amazon to get everything to us really quick and we're like, hello, the waiting is killing me. You know, I can't wait any longer. I ordered this like through Prime. It should be here like five minutes ago. I ordered it ten minutes ago. What's going on? See, basically this. (laughs) We as human beings have never done well with waiting and in this culture, in this moment, We really don't do well with waiting. But interestingly, the second week of Advent focuses on the act, the invitation to wait. And it ties it, interestingly, to this ancient idea of prophecy. And these two things together, important, powerful, they're going to affirm your faith, they're going to deepen your faith. And by the way, if you don't belong to the Christian faith, this is a real intriguing moment for you because this actually might show you why this is not just myth or allegory or invention or a lie, but this might be true. Uh, Let's start today where we must on the second week of Advent. Before the wise men, before gold, frankincense, and myrrh, before the star, before Jesus is presented in the temple, before the songs of Simeon, Mary, and Zechariah, before no room in the end, before the birth of Jesus, before the shepherds, before the choirs of angels that broke out, glory to God in the highest, before Gabriel hung up with Joseph, Before Gabriel showed up to Mary, do you remember um, his amazing words? Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll be with a child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Before the Holy Spirit overshadowed that young teenage girl, we're left with this question. Where was Jesus just before? I mean, did Jesus exist before? Was he created? Who was Jesus before the manger? Who was Jesus before Mary? Before everything. And by the way, it might sound weird to you, but the answer to this is central to everything we hold. Here's what one person wrote. Lean in. The idea, he says, that Jesus as the Son of God eternally pre-existed in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit is absolutely central to the Christian faith, and that Jesus, moved, of course, by love, became incarnate, in other words, took on flesh, and lay in a manger on the first Christmas, Christmas is the foundation on which the whole Christian faith rests. Now, one of the most important Christmas passages, which begins to help us and gets us ready and gets us thinking about waiting and prophecy and also where Jesus was just before the manger is in the book of John. It's not a usual Christmas passage, but it's all about Christmas. 
Some of you know it well. Some of you probably have never heard it before. But I want to remind all of us, this was actually an ancient hymn sung in the early church. Let me read it to you today. Hear God's word. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word, and that's Jesus, by the way, was God. Whoa. Verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all of humanity. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, the word that's Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So before all things, before reality, we read there was the word who was with God and the word Jesus is and was God. And then God spoke and there was creation. God spoke through the word to create all things and all things were declared very good. And yet, if you know the story, a great war started in the heavens and spills over into the new creation. The next set of casualties were the ones made in the image of God. That's us human beings. And like we talked about last week, we chose to sin, to say yes to darkness and no to light. We chose independence over interdependence. We chose ourselves and even our tempter over our creator. And that's when sin and death and pain and suffering and evil came into that very good creation. And it was there, right there, that we, that creation itself started, knowingly or not, we started to cry out for hope, for for salvation, for a Savior, the one that we used to walk with in the garden. We began to wait. We began to wonder. I mean, God, of course, could have left us, but he chose not to because redemption and relationship and restoration, these aren't ideas that God has in his mind. They emanate from him. They are him. They are his DNA. So throughout history, in the long waiting, God begins to move. There are, you could say, rumblings. There are signs. There are prophecies. There are flares that pierce the human darkness, saying this is not the end. The word with God, who is God, will come and dwell among us and bring light again. He will save us. He will set us free. Even at the very beginning, There was actually hope. The very first echo, the very first sign, the very first prophecy was given right after everything fell apart. Do you remember when God confronted that snake to that fallen angel and said the one that would come would destroy all his work? God speaks of Christmas and the outcome of Easter. At the beginning of time, he judges Satan right after the Adam and Eve affair. God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You'll strike his heel. Oh yeah, you're going to wound the one who's coming, but he's going to take you out. He's going to crush you. You're going to be done. Hundreds of years passed. Other promises, other prophecies. And yet the waiting feels so long. Yet again, God speaks this time under the ministry of a man, a prophet named Isaiah. Now his words would become the chants and the songs and the readings of hope for generations of Jews and later followers of Jesus, both Jew and non-Jew. And and never forget that context matters so much. The words that I'm about to read you from Isaiah were given when actually everything wasn't just bad or dark. It was really scary. It was shadow. It was terrible. The people of God were quickly going into a darkness they never thought they might get out of. The Jews in this moment of history have had basically a divide or a civil war. 
There are now two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel and Syria have joined forces because another invader is coming, the Assyrians. And they're now asking their sort of divided family to join them. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you know that God was sending the Assyrians to judge Israel because they had abandoned God. This was God's will. So Israel has totally abandoned God and made an ally with Damascus, if you read the history. Judah has been much more faithful than Israel, yet not totally. And yet, what does faithful Judah do in response to this moment? Do they turn to the Mighty One? the God of the universe? Do they turn to the one that brought them out of Egypt, split the Red Sea, cleared the promised land, the mighty counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace? No. They actually choose to make a deal with the Assyrians who are invading their own family. God comes along and says, how foolish, how sad, how unfaithful. You're no better than Israel. Now the one you've put your trust in, the one you're calling upon, which isn't me, the Assyrians, and later than the Babylonians, they're going to devour you. They're coming, and they're about to bring gloom and darkness over God's people, which will only be displaced in time when the Messiah, Emmanuel, comes and walks with us again. Yet as confusion and darkness form, as the drumbeat of war begins, as coming death and rape and slavery and loss in all forms is creeping closer and closer to the people of God, God speaks to this one man, Isaiah who, yes, literally cries out and cries over the sin of God's people, but he also begins to say that a light is coming, not just for Judah, not just for Israel, but the world. And the first glimpse is in chapter 7. These words later would become the bedrock, would almost form the superstructure of the Christian faith. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel simply means God with us. Not in a storybook way, not in mythology, not in allegory, not fictionally. No, God with us for real. You want to know who God is? I say this every year. Then look at the face of Jesus. Look at the deeds of Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the death of Jesus. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. And you'll see our Creator. You'll see the author of life, the one we're made in the image of, uh, made in the image of, the one we used to walk with in the garden. He, Jesus, is the only incarnation, the only expression of God with us in all of human history. You will know who God is and what He's about and what He offers and what He says yes and no to and what everything. As much as you look in a mirror and see yourself, you want to know God. Look at Him. I mean, what was said at the very first Christmas by that angel? Well, amazingly, these very words, I mean, prophecy fulfilled, the waiting over, Matthew 1, 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Hey, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a, notice that phrase, a son. And you are to call him or give him the name Jesus, because he's going to save many people from the sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord actually had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yet this prophetic book is not just full of hope, his coming, his claims, his work. Also, 700 years earlier, we begin in the waiting moment to get his identity. Just two chapters later, in the middle of the coming chaos and coming gloom, 
and war. There's another hopeful cry, another pointing, another promise, which now, of course, is sung and heard and prayed in probably almost every human language on earth. And it begins like this in Isaiah 9.1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are distressed. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and, and, uh, and the land of Naphtali, uh, uh, Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the non-Jews by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow, the shadow of death, a light is dawned. Now you read that and you go, beyond, boring, I don't know what that's all means. Those are weird words. Let's get to the good stuff. But see, when you skip this, you miss what's so important. These verses are pregnant with hope. The darkness in their day is invasion. Their darkness in their day was the human condition. Misery, sin, spiritual blindness. But a light, a light is promised to come. Let me just read this again. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he's going to honor Galilee of the non-Jews by way of the sea. Now, why is this so important? If you're a seeker or skeptic, this is when you lean in. Again, remember, this was said 700 years before Jesus showed up. Where did Jesus end up living for a lot of his years? Oh, this place called Nazareth. Do you know where Nazareth is? Do you know what county it's in? Well, it's in Zebulun. And more, so much more, Jesus starts his ministry in the same region and makes his greatest claims in the same region and quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he claims to be the light. Luke 4, 8, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, and by the way, there's more. Jesus' very first miracle where he turns water into wine is in a place called Capernaum. Uh, and, and what's so amazing is Capernaum is on the seacoast and it actually literally borders the counties of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it becomes his headquarters for his three years of ministry. So Jesus, watch this. The light that's predicted 700 years earlier is actually geographically exactly where he's supposed to be, and everything that he does is in this place. Hello. See, from Jesus' calling to self-proclamation to where he would live, to the places he'd preach, to, to the places he'd drive out demons and heal and bring hope, this was all given hundreds of years before in the waiting. Oh, Isaiah wasn't done back then. He was moved to pen words that have marked probably every Christmas and the first Christmas and every Advent celebration. These words are now embossed on Christmas cards. They're at the heart of Instagram posts. These words are wedded to brilliant music like Handel's Messiah. Isaiah 9.6, for unto us a child is born. Anyone singing yet? Unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, and Counselor, and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The child that is coming, this great, powerful Lord, Savior, author of all, comes as baby. I know we who grew up in church are so used to this, but let us be reminded again. As one said, God's answer to the oppression and hostility of this proud and cruel world is not to come like a jack-booted warrior to smash out all the opposition. What we already see in the waiting and the promise is real power is found in humility. Real power is found not in sin, but in innocence. Real power is found 
in a cave, not a castle. This baby who's unknown to nearly everyone is the most unique child in time and space. Unto us a child will be born, and unto us, oh, this is really important, a son is given. In the darkest part of the Christmas story, some of you know it, Herod, the supposed king of the Jews, sends out soldiers to kill every single little child under two years old in the vicinity of where Jesus might be because he's heard that Jesus might be the true king of the Jews. And then we begin to see the power of the title son. As the soldiers are approaching, as the vanguard of death is approaching, God intervenes. It says in Matthew 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph again in a dream. Get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child, his mother, during the night, and they left for Egypt. And so was, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Later, Jesus' best friend, John, would pen the most famous verses probably in history that expand on the name that was given to Jesus as they were refugees. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. Oh, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not Believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Not just child, <laughs> not just son, there's more. In the waiting, there's a prophecy that the one is coming, the one that is coming is called wonderful. Now, wonderful in English is weak. Great, good, fantastic. That's what it sort of feels like. Not in Hebrew full of power, the ability to do the unnatural. It's actually the word used over or about God when he walks into Egypt through Moses and he brings the ten plagues and strikes down all that stuff and overcomes the gods of that famous nation. Wonderful in the Bible means extraordinary, supernatural, surpassing, marvelous. What would Jesus be known for? Wonderful freedom. He sets people free from demons. He walks up to sick people and the sickness leaves. He walks into oppression and delivers people. He forgives sin. No wonder people called him wonderful. And, and even more profound, more wonderful is this. He had power over death. Do you remember the story? You might not know it. One of Jesus' closest friends named Lazarus dies. He comes to see his friend. He's been buried, I think, for four days by this point. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are so devastated. And they run up to Jesus and, why didn't you come sooner? And you have the ability to heal sickness. And we know how wonderful you are. And if you had showed up, he would be here. But death is too much for you if you'd just been here on time and healed our brother. He would have not died. And Jesus would say, I'm not late. I actually was told by God the Father, my Father, to intentionally wait. And you can just hear the sisters going, but why would you wait? Why would you make us wait? The wait is actually bad. Why did you delay? Why did you force us into waiting? Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection 
Oh, and I'm the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? And then if you read the verses, he tells them, hey, listen, move the stone away from Lazarus' tomb. And they're like, don't do it. He's like, do it. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you actually sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, who had been dead for four days, I believe, at this moment, came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and just let him go. I mean, this is extraordinary. This is marvelous. This is surpassing. This is wonderful. We'd have to say what Nicodemus said in John 3. No person can do this unless God is with them. He has the power over death. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he would be wonderful, but not just wonderful. Oh, he's the best counselor. You know, if you read the first eight chapters of Isaiah, everything's about not being wise. Wrong decisions, wrong motives, trusting in the wrong people, wrong kingdoms, wrong armies, wrong politics, sin, not in God. Yet the one that is coming is full of wisdom. He's the best counselor. And think about it, he can be the best counselor because there's no sin in him. He has unnatural heavenly wisdom. And wisdom doesn't just mean good ideas. It means right information worked out in life. He demonstrates, he lives for us, and he teaches us how to actually walk with God. Child, son, wonderful counselor, but this one that is coming, the one that we wait for in the waiting, is also not just prophet, not just saint, not just great teacher, not just revolutionary or history maker. No, no, no. He goes one huge leap forward. The one that is coming is mighty God. Now, the name for God here in Hebrew is El, E-L. This is probably the most common version of God's name in the Old Testament. And El just means God the mighty one whose power elicits reverent fear and awe. So, think about it like this. When God speaks, there's no one who can contradict him. Mighty God. When God promises something, no one can revoke his promise or shut it down. When God warns or judges, no one can stop it. He's not just one God amongst the pantheon of gods. He's just not the best of all the gods, like Baal or Amon or Marduk in his time, or Ganesh or versions of Allah or Buddha or the incarnation of the Dalai Lama or the god of the tree, water or fire. He was and is the only true living God. He is mighty. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Child, son, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Oh, but then this next one. He's called the Everlasting Father. I need to slow right down. In the Old Testament, God himself only is called the Father of the people of Israel. As one wrote, pious Jews, aware of the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings, would have never dared address God as Father or Dad or Dear Father or Daddy. Yet the one that is coming is the Everlasting Father. Good, fair, always kind, always right. And notice, I love this, he's called Everlasting Father. Have you thought about this? This Father never abandons. This Father never leaves. 
This father never says, I'm done. This is too complicated, or I'm not interested, or I don't love you anymore. I'm out. He stays. Once the relationship bond is established, it's eternal. Now, let's unpack this father name in two ways, one theologically and one personally. Some of you have been in church for a while are going, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, but he's not the father. What about the Trinity? You can call him anything except the Father. Well, yes, let me unpack this. Remember what Jesus said, I am the Father are one. And more importantly for today, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So it works like this. For, from all eternity, remember the Word was with God, beside God, and yet the Word was God. Jesus in his very nature has always been and always will be the image of God. They share one essence. One wrote, in Greek philosophy, the image has a share in the reality of what's revealed. An image is not distinct from the invisible. So in other words, when you hear image, it's not like what we think about, like facsimile or reproduction. The invisible is becoming visible. And so Jesus is the image of God. He's the exact visible representation. He, he is the illumination of God's presence. Jesus fully reveals the Father. But more, on a deep personal level, Father is an incredibly needed name because here's the truth. Whether our culture believes it or not, we're always looking for dad. One wrote these words, the quest is epic and as old as Homer, who in the Odyssey opens with a son who goes in search for his absent father, ends up finding that father and then returning with his own father to find a son in tow. Fathers and homes blur and blend. The search is human. Uh, one woman, I think it's Margot Maine, for example, invented a term called father hunger to help diagnose the cause of eating disorders in certain young daughters who'd experienced a father's absence, and they deflected that into unhealthy relationships of food and hunger. And then he brilliantly says, who of us isn't an heir to the dreams of our fathers? Father hunger is everywhere, and God this God, the one true living God, is not distant, he's not unknowable, he's involved. He's chosen to stay and be involved, and he's a good father. The father example in the prodigal son is the way God is father. He's relational at his core. And father is a name, it's part of who God is. And if there's one major need, or one of the major needs in our world, in our culture, it is a safe, trustworthy, present, protective and helpful for that father. Our souls, ourselves, our friends, our neighbors, those who know it and those who do not know it, are crying out for this. <laughs> Give me a dad. Now those who have really good loving dads have always realized over time what a rare, precious commodity, a longed-for treasure that he is. And yet, we all know, even we who have amazing dads or present dads, they mess up all the time. And we who are dads, oh, Yet we are told the one that is coming, the one, of course, we now know is Jesus from Nazareth, is the Father revealed, the consistent one, the available one, the perfect one. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? The government's going to be on his shoulders. He's wonderful, a counselor, everlasting father. And if that's not good enough, it's this last little name. He's the Prince of Peace. There's no sin in him. 
He's the Prince of Peace because through his perfect life and his ministry and his perfect death for our sin and his physical resurrection, if we embrace him as Savior and Lord, he covers our sin and he gives us peace between us and God. Because as we've learned in Romans in our series, we are enemies of God by our behavior. He's also the Prince of Peace because when we become Christians, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit moves into the neighborhood, into our life, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which is actually the secret missing sauce to have peace with others. Oh, and then when Jesus comes back again, what we call the second advent, he's going to bring peace to the new heavens and new earth, and all mourning and all crying and all pain is going to disappear, and the new thing will be permanent. Just read the blogs. Read an old newspaper if you still do that. Go on Twitter, Instagram, go on TikTok. Peace is the missing thing. Peace, you could say, is the missing piece. And peace does not come from government or religion or school. The magic bullet is not education or positive thinking or therapy. Many of those things are good and fine, but they not one of those produces peace that passes understanding. Now, this second week in Advent, we are called, we are invited with actually millions of Christians, not just to think about waiting and prophecy, but actually have our lives formed by waiting and prophecy. Now, beyond maybe you learning some new historical information or new insight from the Bible, which is always good, but remember, when you're listening to a sermon, it's not just, did I learn something new? It's also, what is God saying to me in this moment? It's about information and encounter every single time. Never forget that when listening to preaching. So for you who are seekers and skeptics, to you who belong to other faiths, to you who have Christianity as a name only, to you that are spiritual or agnostic or atheist, whoever or wherever or however you label yourself, what a very interesting moment for you to be at church, either physically today or watching online. Do you know that in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, there are 300 predictions, 300 prophecies that directly relate to what we call the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. There are 300 very specific prophecies that Jesus or anyone else had to fulfill to actually be the Messiah. Everything from where you had to be born, to how you had to live, to what you were going to say, to how you were going to die, and where you would die, and how you would be buried. I mean, the list is long and extensive, and if you, this is a wild thing, it's all or nothing. If you miss one of them, you're not the guy. Now, more to the point. I've shared this a few years ago, but it's really important. If you want to do the mathematical calculation of actually doing that, fulfilling all 300, ready? It's one to the 10th power, sorry, it's 1 in, or 1 to the 10, to, sorry, it's 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Or, to put it another way, it's, the chance is 1 in 100 quadrillion. Yes, that's a real number, by the way. I checked. In other words, to do this is mathematically impossible. How could anyone think that Jesus just happened? He was in the right place. He was born in the right place. He said the right things. He was even murdered in a certain way and executed in a certain way. Like, it's true. 
I'd encourage you who are seekers or skeptics to really sit down and not only check out the historicity of Jesus' existence or the truth about his physical resurrection and the authenticity and the veracity of the Bible, but even all the prophecies having to be born in Bethlehem, where he was going to do ministry from, being, being executed on a cross, being laid in a certain type of tomb, like, it's impossible. And yet he did it. Maybe, just maybe, in this Advent moment, you should really stop and consider if Jesus actually is who he claims. For us as Christians in the second week of Advent, we're reminded that there is power, there's formation in waiting. Waiting, I hate saying this, goes against everything that I am. Waiting is part of the process of becoming more like Jesus. I don't know if you thought about it before. Waiting is the place where our wrong desires, like greed, envy, materialism, and idolatry, get confronted. Waiting also reminds us that this moment and this life that we have is not the be-all and end-all. There's actually a second advent coming, a restoration of the new heavens and new earth. If you really believe, and many, many of us as Christians still believe this lie, if you really believe that this life is it, this is it, you got one shot, then you are going to fill your life with every experience you can and every travel you can and all the stuff you can. You're going to try to squeeze everything you can because the world keeps telling you you got one life and one shot, you better, you better do everything you can. And here's the, here's the dark side of this. Why wouldn't you sin? Why wouldn't you break God's laws if you've only got one shot and really the next thing isn't real? <clears throat> but see, that isn't Christian. And it's actually not true. The better is actually coming. Just like the Jewish world waited and waited for the Messiah, now we wait for his return again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was murdered by the Nazis said these words so long ago now. Celebrating Advent means being able to wait. Waiting is the art that is, uh, uh, waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. He probably said this somewhere in the 1930s. It's 2022, and we got Amazon and Netflix now. Another woman said this, Sharon Miller, Advent reminds us it is waiting not predictability or control that has a central place in the Christian faith. Let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian, what are you waiting for? Like, what are you actually waiting for? Have you ever, we talked about listing your fears or listing your worries or listing your weaknesses over the last year and a bit, but have you actually listed what you're waiting for? And could you in this Advent season maybe ask God to reframe the waiting so it doesn't become a place of sin or anger or lost expectations, but you actually say to God, in this waiting, how are you forming me to be more like Jesus? Could you see waiting as worship? Don't rush by what I just said. It could be very life-giving. I prayed this week that Jesus would draw near to Sanctus again. He loves this church so much, like he loves every local church. And isn't this true? Don't we need a wonderful, miracle-working God that heals us? Don't we need a counselor to show us how to live under God's reign and rule? 
we need the mighty God to come with such power in our church that we're moved to worship, to be in awe, to have holy fear, to repent, to be thankful. I mean, Sanctness needs an everlasting Father to give us trust and security and love and stability. We need the Prince of Peace to produce hope and patience and endurance and freedom from sin, death, and cast out every demonic thing from us. So maybe this week you could go back to Isaiah and pray that he would do this among us. Uh, a simple group of prayers as we end. Lord, uh, for those who have not yet met you, know you, encountered you, whether they're very far away or incredibly close, desperately trying to see you or not interested, I pray that in this moment of Advent, this would turn from waiting to prophecy to prophecy fulfilled, that they'd encounter Jesus. For us who are Christians, would you bring for some of us the waiting issues in our life, the things that we're waiting for and waiting for, and they feel so long and so dark or so, so we feel so lost almost. In this moment, would you reframe the waiting into worship? And lastly, God, we pray that you come in great power and that you'd be our counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, and do the amazing things among us. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There, you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Take care, and we'll talk soon.